Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are listening from and when you are listening. This is the voice of A.B. Melchizedek, your servant, serving you all the way from the UK today. Welcome to season three of Thinking Eternal. Um, this season, we are going to be looking at righteousness, holiness, and good works. Uh, for the most part, there tends to be a blurring of the lines between righteousness and holiness, especially. And sometimes that even gets thrown in with good works because... Um, for the most part, the tendency is to judge righteousness and holiness by the amount of works done. So, I mean, yes, it's still correct to say there is a blurring of the lines between the three. So um, we are going to split those three concepts out piece by piece and are going to examine them we are going to see what righteousness is we are going to see what holiness is we are going to see what grace is or how grace fits into all of that and good works so i think all in all we will be in for um, another interesting season so hold on to your hearts uh, but for today our topic is righteousness and to be more precise justification by faith we'll be looking at the concept of justification by faith what is righteousness um, there are some old testament stories i would like us to refer to because from these stories we would be able to have a good picture of righteousness there is something to learn something to glean about righteousness from each of these stories mind you there are a truckload of stories we could have picked but there is a reason we are going to be picking these ones we are picking uh, the first story we are going to look at is, or the first case study, if you like. Well, maybe it's not accurate to call it a case study because we are not necessarily going in depth. But the first person we are going to look at is Noah. Why are we looking at Noah? We are looking at Noah because he's the first person that the Bible refers to as righteous. Note, I did not say he's the first righteous man in Scripture because as we are going to see subsequently, Jesus called Abel righteous. But it's in the new testament that that accolade is awarded him but uh, in the old testament the first person to be called righteous is noah genesis 6 verse 9 it says this is the genealogy of noah 
Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now that word just there is the Hebrew word sadik. Sadik. C-S-A-D-D-I-Q. And it means righteous. If you go to Ezekiel 14, 14, I'm just going to read it again just for clarity's sake. Ezekiel 14, 14. It says, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. So again, this is another, <laughs> this is another, um, if you like, pointer to the righteousness of Noah. No doubt about it, God deemed Noah, or God counted Noah as a righteous man. Second person, we are going to look at is Job. I mean, it makes sense. After all, Job is also mentioned in Ezekiel 14, 14 as righteous. We know the story of Job and I will summarize briefly for people who maybe are not familiar with the story. Job was a man who God boasted about in terms of his righteousness and I was going to scoot back to that portion of scripture I believe is the first chapter of uh, Job verse it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. That was God's testimony about him. But then the devil says, oh, look, it's because you are protecting him and you are guiding him. If you take these things away from him, he will curse you to your face. So God grants him permission and he goes ahead to torment Job. But the point I'm making is in the midst of Job's torment, he does say some very interesting things to God. Job, the 10th chapter. And this is him saying, look, I mean, if I could meet God right now, if God were before me, this is the kind of things I will be saying, or these are the kind of things I will be saying to him. And this is what he's saying about God. Job, the 10th chapter, 
and the third verse. So does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mortal man, of a mighty man, that you should seek out my iniquity and search out my sin? Although you know I am not wicked and there is no one who can deliver from your hands. Then verse 13 again, uh, 13 and 14. It says, and these things you have hidden in your heart. I know that this was you. If I sin, then you mark me and will not acquit me of my iniquity. Verse 17, it says, you renew your witness against me and increase your indignation towards me. Chapter 13, 24 to 27. This is Job again. And this is what he is saying about God again. Or oh, he says his prayer to God. He says, why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro? Will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. So Job was accusing God of tormenting him, was accusing God of despising or hating him, was accusing God of being behind all his sufferings and travails. But we all know God was not behind it. But then in chapter 38, God shows up in response to Job's incessant talking. And, you know, gives Job a very interesting talking to. But at the end, look at what he says. Job 42nd chapter, the 8th verse. And I mean, again, just for context, for people not familiar with the story, at some point, Job's friends came to see him, to console him, and they were involved in a very long back and forth. And it's within that back and forth, Job said some of those things. So his friends were also talking and philosophizing about God. 42.7, he says, And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken what is right, as my servant Job has. <laughs> so God was saying, look, Job has spoken right about me. Mm, interesting. Interesting. The third person we are going to look at is Abraham. Genesis 20th chapter, verses 1 through 6. Genesis 20th chapter, 1 through 6.
And Abraham journeyed from there to the south, and dwelt between Kadesh and Shor, and stayed in Gerah. Now Abraham said of his of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerah, assembled and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself, said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now restore the man's wife, verse 7, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abraham lies. God says absolutely nothing about Abraham's lies. Instead, he rebukes Abimelech and punishes him. Or Abin is thinking about punishing him. And you would see, let me just verify that I believe Abimelech, God had already shut up the wombs. Yes, I'm correct. Verse 18. You see that God had already closed the womb of everything in Abimelech's house. Who was at fault here? Abraham. Who lied here? Abraham. Who does God go after? Abimelech. So what do these three stories tell us about righteousness? Number one, if there is something the story of Noah can tell us, it is the fact that righteousness has absolutely nothing to do with character. Because the same Noah that was referred to as the righteous man, he was also the first drunkard in scripture. If you go to, I strongly believe, Genesis 9, he slept. From verse 20 to 24 to 25, he slept, got drunk, and slept naked. And then one of his sons went to tell the other sons, and he ended up cursing that son. So that's two things. Number one, he was a drunkard. Number two, he cursed his own son. <laughs> In fact, he didn't curse his son. He cursed his son's son. Cursed be Canaan. Canaan was the son of the guilty son that laughed at his, at his nakedness. What parent curses their own child? Yet, this is the first righteous man in scripture. So, righteousness has nothing to do with character. Second story, second lesson from this, and that's what the story of Job teaches us, is that it's God that decides who is righteous and who is not. If you read the whole book of Job, you will see that Job's friends were actually spitting some deep knowledge 
very deep knowledge about God and his ways, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the this, the that. And Job, I mean, don't get me wrong, on the occasion, Job said some very excellent things about God, don't get me wrong. But again, this was a man that was suffering, so a lot of the time his uh, anguish, if you would, got the better of him. Yet despite everything he said, both the ones he said in his serenity and the ones he said in his anger and frustration, God says, look, he has spoken right about me and that those friends who were talking nonsense, there's only one of them God does not rebuke. And that is Elihu who spoke last. And we, we would see why shortly. I don't know if it's this episode, but we will see why shortly. But then God says, my servant Job spoke correctly about me, despite what you, the reader, might think. So it is God that declares a man righteous and declares another unrighteous. What does the story of Abraham teach us? It teaches us that when God declares a man righteous, he means it. He defends that righteousness that he assigns to a man. Genesis, the 15th chapter, verse 6, it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So that righteousness that God reckoned, or if you would, credited to Abraham's account, was defended to Abimelech's detriment. So when God calls a man righteous, he means it. Now these three points are integral to understanding the concept of justification by faith. Note that even in everyday English, the word justify, it means something wrong has been done, but there's an acceptable excuse for it. If nothing wrong has been done, then why are we talking about justification? Oh, this thing is atrocious, but there is a justification for it. There's an acceptable excuse for it. Now, even in legal parlance, because justification as we would see shortly, even in the Greek, but in legal parlance, English legal parlance, justification is a defense to a crime. Is a defense to a crime. So you are not saying you've not done anything wrong. You are not saying you are not guilty of the crime. You are guilty of it. But there is a justification for it. So, for example, somebody commits murder. There is no question about it. There was knowledge. Uh, there was intention or recklessness, at least. No question. But then this murder was committed in reasonable defense of his own life or of his property 
of course there has to be a degree of commensuracy there but if this was done in defense of life or in defense of property then we say you know what this murder is justified we are not saying murder is a fantastic thing but there is a defense for it in the greek justify is the greek word dikayu and what does it mean according to strong's dictionary it means to make righteous to defend the cause of to plead for the righteousness of to acquit and the last definition says justify, hence to regard as righteous. So notice the last one says, after all those long lists, which again corresponds to the explanation I've been making so far on the word justification, but it says to regard as righteous. So if you are being regarded as righteous, it has nothing to do with your actions or inactions or what you do or do not do. So your character is not in question here. You are being regarded as righteous. So we've made that point from the everyday use of the word justify and from the legal parlance and from the Greek definition of the word. That for justification to be applicable, there must in fact be a wrong done. Because if there is no wrong done, there is nothing to justify. And if justify means to regard as righteous, we are not, or the person regarding you as righteous, who is God, by the way, is doing that outside the merits of your character. That's why Noah can be regarded as righteous. The second point we made is that it is God who declares righteous. Romans 8.33 Romans 8.33 It says... Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Does that sound like the point we were making with Job? That is God who is deciding who is righteous, who is not righteous. So if God declares a person righteous, nobody has the right 
to accuse that person or to bring forth a charge against that person that impugns God's testimony of such a person that he is righteous. He said, who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who is justifying. That's why Romans 3.26 says that God will be just and justifier of the one who puts faith in Jesus. The third thing is, when God declares you righteous, he means it. He means it. That is why Jesus was always defending his disciples. If you go to Matthew 12, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry. His disciples were hungry. His disciples were hungry, not Jesus himself, and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. <laughs> but they said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you, in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So he said, look, I mean, and this is something that was so serious that in the Old Testament, I strongly believe, oof, I think it's Numbers, I think it's Numbers 12. I'm not very sure at the moment. I think it's Numbers 12. But there was somebody gathering sticks and they stoned him immediately. That's how seriously they kept this law of the Sabbath. But his disciples here were gathering heads of grain. And what does Jesus do? Defends their righteousness. So when God regards you as righteous, he defends it. He means it. It's not theory. He's not joking about it. He means it. Another part, they were asking his disciples, said, look, the disciples of John fast. Why don't you fast? And Jesus answered them. He said, look, does the bridegroom fast? Do, do the children of the bridegroom fast when the uh, bridegroom is with them? He said, no. But the days are coming, the bridegroom will be taken from them and they will fast in those days. Always leaping to the defense of his disciples. Even where Peter, one of his disciples, cut off somebody's ear, his arrestor's ear. He healed the ear. That was covering up for Peter. Because they would have arrested Peter and that was the end of ministry for Peter. 
Peter would have been sentenced to death for challenging a Roman soldier, but Jesus healed the ear, covered up for Peter. So with these three things in mind, one, it doesn't depend on a man's character. So it is God who decides who is righteous and who is not righteous. Three, God defends those he declares righteous. Defends their righteousness with all he has. You now begin to understand the concept of righteousness for what it truly is. A gift. You see, the believer merely enjoys God's own righteousness. Because our righteousness is not up to par. I believe it's Isaiah 64, 6 that says our righteousness are filthy rags. Filthy rags. It's not enough. So we enjoy God's own righteousness. Remember Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and he, he its righteousness. Or New King James says his righteousness. So seek the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. Or seek the righteousness of God. Not your own righteousness. Don't bring your own to the table. It's insufficient. So the believer enjoys God's righteousness. That's why in the Beatitudes, it never says, blessed are the righteous. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Meaning they have no ability to be righteous. No ability of their own to be righteous. They are hungry and testing of a righteousness that doesn't come from them. It's not in it in any way. And am I making this up or is that what the entire Bible has been saying all along? Remember Romans 3? It says, now the righteousness of God outside the law has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So this righteousness we enjoy, this regime where the believer enjoys God's righteousness, it is something the prophets and the law have been testifying about from time immemorial. So Job 9 verse 2, for instance, Job says, how can a man be righteous with God? How? How can a man be righteous with God? So the overarching theme or one of the overarching themes of the Old Testament is the people there clamoring and crying out and craving for salvation and for a righteousness that doesn't come from them. How can a man be righteous with God? Answer, by using God's own righteousness. Psalms 71. Let's just look at some examples of this clamoring. So it's not like uh, we are making things up. Psalms 71st chapter.
15 and 16 verses. It says, My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the day, for I do not know their limits. I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, of yours only. Your righteousness, of yours only. Whose righteousness? God's. So that's why David will say something like, he makes me lie down. Uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He leads me through the path of righteousness. I mean, he can't go there himself. He can't find it himself. He can't walk that road himself. The good shepherd has to lead him down that path of righteousness. There is a specific path of righteousness God requires. You can't carve your own path. And that path is only the good shepherd that can lead you down that path. What does Job say? Uh, the book of Job, rather. Remember we said earlier that out of all of Job's friends, the only person that was not rebuked is a guy called Elihu. So if God didn't rebuke him, well, he rebuked everybody else, including Job, technically speaking, at some point. So if four people are having a conversation, God rebukes three, then it shows one person was spot on about him. And hear what he says in Job 33. 23 to 28. If there is a messenger for him, that is for a man, a mediator, one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness, his H is in capital letter there. I mean, I'm reading from the New King James. So H is in capital letter there because it's referring to God. So he shows man his uprightness. That's what the messenger is supposed to do, to show man God's righteousness. Then he, God, is gracious to him, the man on whose behalf there's a messenger, and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray to God, and God will delight in him. He will see God's face with joy, for God restores to man God's righteousness. Now, again, I've used the word God in place of he and his that are in capital letters here, just so the verse makes, much, makes more sense. So because of the messenger on man's behalf, what does God do? He restores his, that is God's righteousness upon him. Why does it say restore? Because God's righteousness is what man enjoyed before he rebelled. What Adam had before the fall was God's righteousness. Remember, he was created in God's image. So everything he had was God's, including his character which was by nature righteous.
So it was in the rebellion that God's righteousness was lost and then Christ came by his prize on the cross to restore that righteousness. Notice the only reason this man is delivered is because there is a messenger for him to show God's uprightness. And because of that messenger, God's righteousness is restored to man. So how does this carry on to the New Testament? You know, I... I I'm taking time to show you this thing from the Old Testament so you see the patterns. That even from that time, God has always been dealing with men based on justification by faith, not character, necessarily. How does this carry on to the New Testament? Romans 4th chapter, 6th verse. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So you see this righteousness we enjoy is an imputed righteousness. It's God's own righteousness imputed on us. That's why Romans 5.17 describes it as a gift. It says, much more those who receive of the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life by one, Jesus the Christ. But now this begs a question. You see, this righteousness is imputed. So how real is it really? Is, it, is this not just a... Is this not just a jurisprudential, metaphysical kind of righteousness? This ethereal, surreal kind of thing? If it's imputed, how real is it? How true is it? If it's an imputed righteousness. Even without going to the Bible, I can tell you, that the righteousness is so real, God is willing to defend it just the way he did for Abraham. Abraham believed God. It was imputed unto him for righteousness. And because of that, somebody touched Abraham's wife due to no fault of his. And God had already swung into action to close up the womb of everything he had. That's how real that righteousness was, even though it was imputed. But then again, there's another angle to it. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Let's look at it. This is the chapter of the Great Exchange. It says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
So notice, Jesus had no sin. Jesus had no physical sin. Our sin was imputed into Jesus. Is it fair to say that? Is it fair to say our sin was imputed into Jesus? Jesus did no sin, remember? Um, 1 Peter 2, 22, he did no sin. 1 John Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one. He knew no sin. First John three five. In him is no sin. First John eighteen. I believe is thirty eight. So I found no fault in this man. Luke twenty three. I believe is forty one. Says surely this was a righteous man. These are the testimonies of everybody that was that had cause to interact with Jesus. Pontius Pilate's wife told him, you know, have nothing to do with that just man. So despite being totally sinless, God imputes sin on him. And the sufferings Jesus endured, were they real sufferings or were they physical, ethereal kind of sufferings? No, my friend. They were real, tangible sufferings. Jesus was whipped physically. Jesus' body was broken physically. Jesus bled physically. Jesus died physically. As well as spiritually. Because there was a separation of Jesus from God on the cross. And what is death? It's simply separation from God. We showed that to you in... Uh, I think it was season one when we discussed uh, what the hell. Episode eight, I believe, of season one. So Jesus suffered spiritual death, yes, but physical punishment for sin. And that is why when he died, he had to rise up physically as well so if jesus because of imputed sin suffered and died physically what makes you think our imputed righteousness is not every whit as serious as jesus's imputed sin I don't know if you get the point. So if Jesus' imputed sin, because of the imputed sin of Jesus, he was physically punished and spiritually punished. Is it safe to say that our imputed righteousness gives us physical blessings and spiritual blessings as well. I mean, the physical blessing is this, that God does not consider you a sinner. That in God's eyes, you are every with as sinless as Jesus Christ was and is. 
that you are now in Christ. In Christ. So God looks at you and what he sees is the perfection of his son. That is the physical blessing. And what is the spiritual blessing? Eternal life. And eternal life is what every believer in Christ has right now, by the way. But you know, just the way light shines in darkness, light is more profound in darkness. Light is more important in darkness. Light is more obvious in darkness. That is how eternal life is more obvious in death. I mean, during the day, who needs a touch? Who needs the bulb in his room? It's useless. It's there. You can switch on the bulb in, in light, but it's not obvious. It's function. It's not pronounced or profound. It's impact. It's minimal. At best. But when there is darkness, you switch on the light. Everything hinges on that light. So in the same way, I mean, that's not a perfect analogy because obviously eternal life now is way more valuable than a light bulb on a sunny day, but just for purposes of analogy. But in the same vein, that is how our eternal life now, even though there is somewhat dormant, and I say somewhat because, again, technically it's because of that eternal life you can communicate with God. You can pray to God. It's because of that eternal life you are alive to God. You are justified in His presence. So it's a big deal anyway. But to the world around you, that's a better way of putting it. To the world around you, it makes no difference. The world sees you the same physically before you got to know jesus and after you knew jesus the world sees you the same everybody looks at you as like a normal human being you know so it's not obvious yet but in death that is where eternal life becomes obvious like that bulb that comes on on a dark day so we wield eternal life now thanks to the righteousness that we wield. But it's on death that when this thing becomes all we have, that we will see just how much of it we depended on. So all of that long story was just to tell you your imputed righteousness is in no way surreal. It is as real as the device from which you are listening to my voice now. More real than that, in fact. Because of that price that Jesus paid. He paid a real price for a real righteousness. So in Jesus, you die a real death to sin. And in Jesus' real resurrection, you are really resurrected to God, free from the sin you died to. And that's a righteousness you enjoy. 
is God's righteousness. So it is that righteousness he defends. It is a righteousness that has nothing to do with you, but everything to do with God. And it's a righteousness that comes from God because God declares you righteous. In fact, I think it's in uh, Romans 4 again that it says, it zeroes in on that Abraham believed God and was accounted unto him for righteousness. Verse it says it was written not just for him, but for everybody who would believe in him, who would believe in God. So God credits your account with righteousness. Think of it this way again. Another analogy just came to mind. Again, these, these are not perfect analogies. You know, Paul said something. He said, because of the weakness of your flesh, I'm talking to you in this manner, you know, because there's because of how weak we are and how limited our understanding is, the, we will just do our best to draw certain analogies. They, are, they will not be perfect parallels. But look at it this way. At the end of the month, what happens? You get an alert in your bank account, so depending on your bank settings anyway. But what happens is you learn that you have so, so, so amount of money. You've been paid that amount. Do you see that money physically? No, you don't see it. Oh, for all you know, you know, you're, it might just be a numbers game. But where you see the power of those numbers is when you want to purchase something. Where you exchange that thing and something real comes up to you. You receive that. You go on Amazon or you go on... Uh, you know, it's funny because I'm struggling to think about shopping sites. I'm sure some of you already have 15 million shopping sites spring to mind. It just tells you the kind of person I am. I don't do much shopping. But you go to Amazon or you go to eBay or whatever. And then they ask for your card details for something. You give it to them. And then they deduct something from your account. Notice you've not seen any money at all in this process. But where you see the effect of those numbers in your account is when the physical package is handed to you. So in a sense, just look at those numbers as like a righteousness that is imputed. But the power of that will be seen when Jesus is revealed in the last time. The full extent of that. When you are going to get that Amazon package there. Notice that those numbers in your account empower you to get that thing. That is your right to get whatever you want to get on Amazon within that price range. In the same way, it is the righteousness of God that entitles you to be reunited with him in his kingdom. That entitles you to stand before Christ. That entitles you to stand before God. 
and this is at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are going to get that Amazon package of seeing him physically, of being physically in his presence, of being physically in his kingdom. So it's a spiritual reality now that you are in his kingdom. It's a spiritual reality now that you are righteous. But from God's standpoint, it is a tangible righteousness. Just the way from the bank's standpoint, those numbers are actual money they owe you. You can call on it at any time and they are obligated to release it to you. That is actual money, it's not just numbers. In the same vein, from God's end, it's actual righteousness. There's an actual transaction that has taken place. And in the fullness of time, when Christ is revealed, we are going to see the tangibility of all of this. So, I hope this has given you something to think about. You are justified. And God is your justifier. And your justification has nothing to do with your character. Again, this is one season you would want to see through to the end. Because we would also be talking about good works and holiness and some other things along the way. I mean, you just can't take one episode and run away. You really need to sit down and um really listen to everything that's going to be said in this season and also as a recommendation it's recommended you listen to the first two seasons not because i want to rack up views or rack up listens or anything but because the there is method to the madness it's systematic we are building on certain foundations so if you are just coming in at this phase, you've missed out on foundations we've built in the first and second seasons. So I implore you, go back, listen to the first season, listen to the second season, and you'll have an all-round better, you'll be on an all-round better footing, you know, to follow us on this journey this third season. Uh, right, so it is Christ's righteousness we take. So, if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but the sins of the world. That's first John 2, verse 1. Is Jesus the righteous righteousness we stand on? Remember, as always, life is short. In the context of eternity, nothing matters except what you do for Jesus and for the gospel. Take care.